Well, welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It is good to have you here on this Sunday. Um, our, our Bible reading this morning will be found in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Mark writes this, And he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silence. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel together with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for your word. We're grateful that you let us know about yourself and about how we might no longer be guilty of our sins. We find that all in your word. We're grateful, Father, for the compassion of Christ, how he demonstrates that as he heals this man's withered hand, despite the fact that the Pharisee said that he couldn't. We're grateful that Christ shows us that what matters to you more is not being able to check off check boxes. But what matters to you more is a heart of worship, a heart that cares about what you care about. And so, Father, we praise you for how righteousness was never meant to be pursued absent of compassion, absent of care for others. We're grateful, Lord, that the righteousness that you give us is not mechanical, but it is uh, something that we get to live our entire lives by um, through your grace. And uh, Lord, we pray, just knowing what's going on in our world, that you would continue to protect your people around the world uh, and allow for us to uh, remember, um, remember them in our prayers and, and to remember to live in light of the fact that you are coming again. We're grateful, Father, uh, that we have this opportunity to come together as your people to worship you this day. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. You, Pastor, and again, I want to welcome you to our service. At this time, let's worship the Lord through our announcements. Uh, the first announcement is that we're going to have a baptismal service on April the 17th, and we'll be holding it uh, here. That's Easter Sunday. Uh, so please mark that off on your calendars. Now, if you've completed our Fundamentals of uh, Church Life class and are interested in becoming a member um, at our upcoming April 10th church family meeting, uh, you can use this link. It's go.sfbible.org forward slash membership uh, to download information on how to apply. So please submit your application as soon as possible to schedule your membership interview before April 10th. Uh, summer Camp uh, 2022, the online registration is now available. So if you have friends who are interested in a summer day camp for their kids entering kindergarten through sixth grade, please invite them to register for this two-week event. There's also scholarships available if finances are an issue for SF Bible um, Church members. 
serving uh, as volunteers. We are still looking for volunteers to serve at day camp, and there's a one-week training prior to day camp uh, from June 13th to 17th, and if you'd be able to serve one to three weeks, or just even a few days, please let uh, Theo Lowe know, and you can email him at his uh, email address. It's going to be found in the bulletin. Uh, the as far as the fundamentals of faith class, uh, it will help you to understand basic biblical truths about Jesus Christ. And the fundamentals of church life class is a prerequisite to becoming a member of SFBC and helps uh, participants understand what it means to be part of a church. So these classes will only be taught in person and the start will be determined if there's enough interest and you need to contact Jimmy Ng for that. Uh, now, save the, uh, save the date, May 10th, the Master's Chorale uh, will be here at SF Bible. Um, they're going to minister to us and, uh, in song, so please save that date and come and join us for this event. It's a Tuesday night uh, at 6.30, right here. Uh, also, um, let's see, we want you to, um, for the women's um, ministry, save the date on May to 21st, um, and there's going to be a call to discipleship conference. Uh, in another conference is the NCT conference, and that's um, registration is uh, now open. And NCT stands for North Creek Counseling Training, and it's a valuable resource for those who desire to grow in our knowledge and skills in biblical counseling. The fee is only $120 for the sessions in August, September, and October if you sign up uh, now until July 1st. And then uh, lastly, drivers are still needed for uh, Virginia Kwong. Uh, it's easy to forget, so sign up to minister to her. And uh, I just want to remind you all to look at the bulletin yourself to get all of the details. At this time, I'd like for us to stand and let's worship uh, the Lord together in song. Among the outcast and the poor, 
forsaken and died to take our curse so you could be our joy forevermore forevermore you are the glorious Christ the greatest of all delights your power is unequal your love beyond all heights no greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life we join the song of angels who praise you day and night glorious Christ you're seated now in heaven enthroned at God's right hand you shattered death and freed us from our fears and though we cannot see you you're coming back again and all will greatest of all delights your power is unequal your love beyond all heights you are the glorious Christ the greatest of all delights your power is unequal your love beyond all heights no greater sacrifice than when you lay down day and night, glorious Christ. We now come to the part of our service where we observe our offering. And as we do so, uh, I would like to turn our attention to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to take a look at verses 16 through 17. David writes this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now when David writes this, he's not... Uh, at all saying like, oh, well, the Old Testament system, that doesn't matter. Who cares about sacrifices? You know, God put it there for no reason. Um, that's not what he's saying. But what he's trying to help, his, uh, what he's trying to help Israel uh, learn, and us by extension, is that though God did institute the sacrifices, though he does have um, these offerings that he established in his law, these things were meant to help facilitate worship. They were meant to help people uh, focus their affections on God, or focus all of their attention on God. And so um, when he says that God's not pleased necessarily with just the offerings, it's, it's just that idea that God is not um, looking for us just to do stuff for him, right? but he wants our hearts. And so as we give, uh, or if you've already given, uh, let's, let's keep this in mind as we're, uh, as we're worshiping the Lord together, that our, our offering, whatever we're giving, um, 
whether we've, we're giving it, giving it today or we're giving it uh, online, it's all because of our love for the Lord. Uh, let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful to you for your great love that you've shown us. We know that we've sinned against you in, in so many different ways, and yet it has not stopped you from loving us one bit. And so we're grateful, Lord, that your love is a faithful love, even when our love can at times be faithless. We praise you, Lord, that you're not all about sacrifices or offerings in worship, but what you care about is our hearts. And so for those of us who are giving, we pray that, Lord, we would even now examine our hearts to see whether we're giving out of duty and habit or out of our love for you. We pray, Lord, that you would use this offering to continue to increase the ministry here at SFBC and also that you would use uh, the money to help saints in need in our country and even uh, those saints who are in need uh, abroad. We pray, Father, that you would be honored in, in the offering uh, today. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the fact that he came to this earth to live the life that we could not live so that when he died on the cross in our place as a sacrifice, not just for one person's sin or two people's sin, but for the sin of all who would believe. We're grateful, Father, for just this immense sacrifice that he gave to all of us. And so we're, we're thankful, Father, for that. We can't wait for that day when we are able to go to heaven and to worship you with all of our hearts, with all of our lives, and, um, and to be uh, free from sin. What a glorious day indeed that will be. Uh, and we, we can't wait for that day. And until that day, as we are continuing to uh, live here on this earth, we pray that, Father, you would uh, continue to make us more and more like your Son. Help us to look to his example and strive to the best of our ability through your Holy Spirit to be the people that you want us to be. We're grateful, Father, for, uh, for Christ. And we pray that as, um, as, as we turn our attention now to the preaching of your word, that you would be pleased through it. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again to uh, SFBC, San Francisco Bible Church. We're grateful to have you with us today. Uh, I have the privilege uh, to uh, bring the word of God to you and uh, to spend time with you all in fellowship over the word. Uh, we're, we're going to have the opportunity to hear from the book of Mark, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3. If you, are, uh, if you are new or uh, you've not been with us for our study of Mark, you can catch up with this series uh, on our website or on our Joint Heirs podcast and just look for the series of Mark. Uh, but uh, if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you, please turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read from our text today. Okay, Mark chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits were seeing him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that uh, you would be pleased through the preaching of your word, that you would give us, um, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to uh, just learn what you want us to learn and have soft hearts so that we can be uh, your people. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, every single person who has ever lived has some pride 
in their lives. We all have some sense of pride in our lives. The things which inflame the pride of, uh, of people varies from person to person. But a common denominator that can inflame pride for many people is praise. And when you're praised, doesn't that make you feel good? It makes you feel nice and warm. It makes you feel uh, like you're doing something right. Now, not every single person in the world is a people pleaser. But there's always an extra measure of pride that we can feel when certain people praise us. And when certain people praise us, people that we look up to, people that we respect, or perhaps it's our parents, whoever it might be that we respect, that we desire their approval, right? when, when they're pleased with us, it's kind of like, oh, okay, like, I did pretty well for myself. And you see, when that praise increases, it's really hard to stay humble, isn't it? It's really hard to remain humble. Think about some of our celebrities of the day. Many a humble actor, actress, athlete, or whatever other kind of celebrity there is, has gone from humble to arrogant and then prideful. So many have done this that the media is always happy, almost shocked when they meet someone who has celebrity status and they're humble and they're down to earth and they're like, wow, who would have thought a humble celebrity, a good-natured person, someone who's down to earth, someone who's relatable? Now, this tendency towards pride affects the majority of us, but... Our Savior was not this way. As his reputation and fame grew, he remained the same person. He was still the sinless Son of God who stood up for what was right, who stood up for the honor of God, yet still had compassion on those who were in need. And while he certainly would have been right to try and win the people over to himself, since, after all, he was God, He is the Son of God. He never forgot his role, and he never forgot his purpose. He never forgot that though he was rightfully a king, he was also sent to serve. And that's the theme of Mark, right? Messiah, the servant. Jesus, the servant. He was here to serve God, the Father, to accomplish his purposes here on earth, but he was also here to serve the people to whom God sent him. And Jesus, you know, he could have come to this earth flaunting his godhood to the people and demanding worship and respect. We've we've seen that in movies, right? I am a god! I deserve worship! We've seen people do that and flaunt their authority, but that's not what Jesus did. He continued throughout his life, throughout his ministry, to, to, to prove himself to be the humble son of God who was committed above all else to serving God the Father. In our passage today, we're going to observe two demonstrations of Jesus' humble commitment to honor 
God the Father, even as his popularity grew. And we're we're going to see this first in the commitment to gospel proclamation, and second, in the commitment to the Father's plan. So we're going to see the commitment to gospel proclamation and the commitment to the Father's plan. First, the commitment to gospel proclamation. Verses 7 through 8. And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. You see, in verse 6, where we left off last time, The Pharisees and the Herodians, two unlikely partners, decided to work together to find a way to kill Jesus. And all of a sudden, here in verse 7, Mark tells us that Jesus withdrew to the sea. It it seems like this might be a reaction to the Pharisees, but how can we know for sure? We don't want to read into it. Uh, We want to make sure that if we're going to say that he withdrew in reaction to the Pharisees, uh, that that we're right. So how do we know for sure? Well, Matthew is actually really helpful for us here because he tells us in Matthew 12, 15 that Jesus was aware of their plot and he withdrew from them accordingly. He was aware of the Pharisees and the Herodians' plot to kill him or to, to take his life from him. And so, because it wasn't time yet, he withdrew. He withdrew. God the Father again allows Jesus to know what others are thinking, so that the mission that he sent Jesus on can continue. Yes, Jesus would eventually be betrayed and killed by the very people that he was sent to save, but now is not that time. So, returning to Mark 3, Jesus withdraws to the sea. Now, Jesus' withdrawal to the sea might seem a little strange, because he was in Capernaum, likely, when he entered the synagogue and healed the man with the withered hand. And as you can see on the map that we're going to put up on the screen, uh, Capernaum is right towards that northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. So what does does, uh, Mark mean when he says uh, he withdrew to the sea? Because he was basically already there. Well, as we saw early on in the book of Mark, Jesus never intended to stay in one place because his mission was not to establish the church in one place and have everyone come to him, right? but he was going about preaching the gospel to as many people as he could in this particular region. And so as he withdraws, he likely heads up further north, probably to the area of Bethsaida, uh, at least on that map, but not exactly Bethsaida because there's a little gap there. But he's probably in the northern area. And the reason why we, we, um, we believe that he's in the northern area of the Sea of Galilee is because that area tended to be a little more isolated. Right? It was more wilderness. And so uh, as the Pharisees were trying to get him in the city, it's like, okay, well, naturally, let's go somewhere where he can't, or where they can't. <laughs> now, as we've been noting, Jesus' not only because of his game-changing preaching and teaching, but also because of his Jesus' 
ministry began in Galilee, sure, but it's not surprising that there was a great multitude um, that from that region that, that followed him, but it was even more surprising when you see who else came alongside to follow after him. Uh, further south from that Galilee region, right? so we, we hear that uh, there are people from Galilee who are following him, but further south we see that um, people from Judea and Jerusalem had heard of Jesus. Right? And, and as they heard of Jesus, they began to make the trek up north to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, and you know, Sorry, Jerusalem's not on this map. Um, I didn't put a map of that one there. Right? But they, they made the travel up to the Sea of Galilee to, to hear about Jesus. And that's not too surprising. It's not too far from, from, from that region. Um, but, but it's interesting to note that the people that, that uh, Mark had been describing so far, right, the people in Galilee, the people from Judea and from Jerusalem, those are typically pretty Jewish areas. Right? Those, um, those areas are pretty... Uh, full of, of Jewish people who live there. Now, uh, perhaps they expected Jesus to be the Messiah. Right? Perhaps they were just interested in Jesus because what he was doing seemed as if he was just one of those prophets that Yahweh had sent um, in the olden days. Right? So in either case, right, this Jewish attention on Jesus... It's not really that surprising. We, we would almost expect it. Now, the other areas where people were coming from, that was a little more surprising because those people uh, who were from those other areas were half Jewish or perhaps not even Jewish at all. The territory of Idumea may sound familiar to you because King Herod was from Idumea. Uh, Idumea was formerly known as Edom. And uh, that area is further south of where, where Jesus was. Um, the next region described, the area beyond the Jordan, uh, was east of Galilee. And, and the population of that region was typically a mix of Jew and Gentile. Now that final region that was described, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, were largely, if not entirely, Gentile regions. Now why are these geographical details of where people uh, were coming from significant for Mark to note for us, right? Because it's like, Mark, that's cool, but why do we need to know this, right? What am I supposed to do about this? Well, it reminds us that Jesus's commitment to preach the good news of the gospel was not limited to the Jews, right? We would think that he would have as his concern the Jews only, but that wasn't his primary concern. He knew that he needed to go to the Gentiles also. And this is something, this, this mission to bring the, the, the message of the coming of the kingdom, right, the greatness of Yahweh, this was something that God had set up all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 12, 3, God tells Abraham that it will be through him, that it will be through Abraham's descendants that all the nations, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that is ultimately seen in Christ. As God says in Isaiah 49.6, when he says this, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. 
I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So you see, the gospel proclamation begins in Israel. It starts there. But it must go further out. It must spread. And we begin to see that the message of God's kingdom plan, God's salvation plan, begins to go to those who are outside of Israel as people from areas outside of the centrally Jewish areas of Israel are beginning to hear of Jesus and come, uh, and, and come to him to hear more about his teaching and more about his message. And you see, this is something that ought to cause us to be incredibly grateful because without this crucial step, Jesus preaching to those who are outside of Jewish areas, you and I would not have the chance, would not have had the chance, excuse me, to hear the gospel. But praise be to God that Jesus understood the mission. He didn't let himself get comfortable and say, you know what, I'm just going to camp here. I'm just going to... Uh, preach to the ones who I share a culture with, the people who, uh, who look like me, who talk like me. I praise God that he didn't do that. Praise God that he was expanding out, right? that the gospel message was for us all. He understood the mission. He understood the assignment, and he proclaimed the gospel to everyone who came to him, whether they were genuinely interested in the message of the kingdom, just curious about the hype, or just wanted something from him. It doesn't matter what they wanted, he was going to preach the gospel to them. Now, the fact that this mixed crowd of people who came with various interests was incredibly large is seen to us in the next few verses, verses 9 and 10. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So Jesus, you know, he, he withdraws from the city. He goes into the wilderness. And even going into the wilderness is not enough to get the people off him. Right? If you're claustrophobic and you just, or if you're an introvert, like this is a nightmare, right? To have people just like constantly coming to you, wanting to get closer to you, right? It's just like, dude, leave me alone. And there are so many people trying to press in on Jesus. He, he, he told his disciples, like, hey, can, can you guys get me a boat so that I can preach to people from, from the sea? Right, so I have some space so that I can just focus on preaching. You see, his greatest concern was the preaching of the message of the kingdom so that the people would hear that message, that they would repent of their sins, and that they would return to God the Father. That was his goal. That was his primary concern. But many of them were primarily interested in being healed from their afflictions. Though God allowed for people to be healed through Jesus, it doesn't mean that his power of healing was constantly flowing through him. Right? It's like if you had a cut and you know, you're walking through the wilderness, and Jesus is right there. And you're like, hey, Jesus, and you slap him on the back. You're like, oh, hey, cool, my cut's healed. Right? It's not like that, okay? Um, but you see, people knew that Jesus did have the power of healing, that he could heal through touch. And so, desperate to be healed, 
They pressed in, wanting to touch Jesus, hoping to be healed. Or we even know right, there was that lady with the issue of the, the flow of blood. Right? She, she believed in her mind, believed with all her heart that all she needed to do was just touch the, the hem of Jesus' robe. And if she was able to do that, she'd be healed. Right? That's incredible. Right? Jesus' healing power is incredible. Even with modern medicine, there are plenty of people who would jump at the opportunity to be healed in an instant simply by just touching Jesus. Right? Not only is it free, right, which is probably the most important part for a lot of us, right? but not only is it free, but it's instantaneous. Right? You, there, you don't have to wait for things to heal. There, there are no need for stitches. There is no need for rehab. It's instantaneous healing. Right? Who wouldn't want that? Think about it from Jesus' part, though. He could have tried to profit from it if he wanted to. Right? All these people were coming in, seeking him out. And even if he was burnt out from all these people trying to see him, there could have easily been a sense of pride that developed because, hey, the people are here to see me. But see, Jesus didn't care about popularity. He didn't care about his reputation as a healer. Jesus did come to do good to people. But doing good was not his primary motivation. Now, he certainly could have done a lot of good, a lot more good. He perhaps could have even changed the entire world while he was here during his first coming. He could have just stopped everything, changed everything, spoke peace into existence, spoke poverty out of existence. He could have met everyone's felt needs. He could have took care of everybody so nobody was wanting. But that wasn't the plan. That wasn't God's plan. It wasn't, it's not supposed to happen at this time. God's focus is not on meeting our felt needs or even our wants. He's trying to address our greatest need. Right? And at, at that time, the greatest need, actually even now, right? the greatest need that any person has is the forgiveness of sin. Right? To be made right with God. Because in the end, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you have much, whether you have little, whether you're healthy, whether you're broken, right? at the end of the day, we all still go to the grave. And we have to answer to the Lord for whether we believed in him or not. So God's focus was not just on making people happy and comfortable while they were on their way to hell. His goal was to give them what they most desperately needed, which was salvation. Right? And his goal wasn't, wasn't just Israel. He wanted to bring salvation to the whole world so that all the families of the earth can receive that ultimate blessing, the forgiveness of sins through Abraham's ultimate offspring, Jesus. And so, Jesus wasn't here for himself or to establish something for himself. He was here to proclaim the gospel to the crowds so that they may be saved. And so that after they're saved, they can go out 
to other people and proclaim to them the need to repent also. Now, of course, ultimately, we know that Jesus also needed to die on the cross in order to pay for all sin once for all, but he doesn't get there if he doesn't first proclaim the gospel here. You can't skip steps. There are no cheat codes to help you skip levels. If Jesus gets distracted by focusing just on good works, the rest of God's plan doesn't move forward. So we're incredibly grateful for the fact that he was committed to proclaiming the gospel. Even though there were so many different opportunities that, well, you and I probably would take to glorify ourselves. Now, as we reflect on and are grateful for Christ's commitment to proclaim the gospel despite the large crowds he was attracting, it provides us with an opportunity for some self-reflection. When we come to church and we commit ourselves to being a part of this local body, why are we here? Why are we here? Are we like the crowds who sought after Jesus because hey, this guy's, this guy's pretty popular. He's pretty cool. He says a lot of cool, inspiring things that make me want to do something with my life. He heals my afflictions. Are we like them? Just wanting stuff from Jesus? You know, are, are we here because we're, we're hoping that the Lord would allow for us to find a spouse? or our next best friend here at church? Are we here because the people are nice and being a part of church allows for us to build community? At least easier than we would be able to do than you know, outside of the church. Or are we here for all these other things, these extra things? And I'm not saying that they're bad things, but are we here for these other things more than we are here for Jesus? more than we are here for God? Or are we here because we genuinely love Christ? Because we genuinely love his people? If you do love Christ, and if you genuinely do love those people, love his people, those bonds of friendship that we are able to build with, with people in the church, those will naturally come. Those will naturally come. Yeah, you know, sometimes we might not be able to make friends with the particular people we want to make friends with, but at the same time, right, the Lord provides friends in unexpected ways. Or people who will run with us, people who will care for us and check in with us. Um, he will do all those things for us. And as we do that, or as, as we pursue Him rightly, right, we'll also encourage one another and and challenge each other to live righteously, not just for the facade of Sunday or the facade of Friday, right? but to actually live it out in all areas of our lives so that when people see us, they know that we're Christians, not because we carry a Bible around or we, uh, they know that we go to church, but because of the way that we live shows Christ to others. Right? So what are we here for when we come to worship? Right? Are we like the crowds that pressed in on Jesus? Right? Or do we actually love God and love his people? Now, as you can see, the end goal is roughly the same. 
Right? We're still building bonds. We're still building community as the church, but how we get there matters. Right? How we get there matters. It's just like these crowds that are following Jesus. They all want something from, from Jesus. Right? Some people want salvation. Others want their lives improved. Jesus can do both. But one need is most, most pressing and important, and that's that forgiveness of sins and salvation. And so when we come to church, we want to make sure that we're here for worship. We're here for worship. That we're here to grow in Christ. And that as a result, we will grow spiritually and build those friendships and, and bonds that we desire rather than using church as a means to get what we want privately. Now, Jesus' commitment to proclaiming the gospel reminds us also of his humility. He wasn't here to build a kingdom for himself. Rather, he wanted to establish the kingdom for God the Father. And as we gather, as we strive to do good to those around us, let us remember that our purpose here mirrors our Savior's purpose. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here for our own personal benefit. But we're here for equipping, for edification, and for encouragement so that we can proclaim, to the, proclaim the gospel to as many people as we can. And that leads us to the second demonstration of Jesus' humble commitment to honor God, the Father, as his popularity grew. And that is the commitment to the Father's plan. The commitment to the Father's plan. Verse 11 through 12. And whenever the unclean spirits were seeing him, they would fall down before him and cry out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell them who he was. You see, these next two verses, they might seem a little odd to us. Because after all, wasn't Jesus' mission to proclaim the gospel to the people? And if people knew that he was the Son of God... Wouldn't that help his ministry? Or wouldn't that improve his ministry? Well, it certainly could have helped in some sense, but it also doesn't help in another sense. Jesus wasn't exactly shy about who he was and why he came to this earth. And that's contrary to all those people that you might hear, who, uh, that you might speak to, who, who say uh, that Jesus never explicitly said that he was the Son of God. Or that he was God. That's what they say, right? But when you look at Jesus' life, when you read about his ministry, when you even read about how other people reacted to him, you can see that that's not the case. The fact that the Pharisees accused Jesus of blaspheming multiple times and even told Pilate in John 19 that Jesus made himself out to be the Son of God proves those claims false. Jesus did tell tell people that he was the Son of God. He did make himself equal to God. You remember a few weeks ago when we covered the the, the healing of the paralytic. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And he backs it up, not only by saying, your sins are forgiven, but then he says, get up and walk. Pick up your mat and go home. He backs up his ability to heal. He backs up his divinity, his divinity claims. So Jesus never was shy about that. So anyways, despite the fact that many people understood that he was claiming to be the Son of God, that he was claiming to be the Messiah, 
And, and they understood you know, that he was placing himself on the same level as God. Despite that fact, many people still did not believe in him because he did not meet their expectations of what Messiah would look like, what Messiah would do. So a positive ID of Jesus as the Son of God, even from the demons, would not have helped Jesus succeed in his ministry. And also think about it this way too. If you knew that some individual was just kind of a little off, and you suspected that perhaps, and this is back in their time, right? but you suspected perhaps that this person might be demon-possessed, would you actually believe them when they said, oh, there goes the Son of God? Right? Would you believe that? Probably not. Right? So a positive idea of Jesus as, as the Son of God, even from demons, wouldn't have amounted to much. And Jesus... Jesus' brother James actually makes the exact same point in James 2 when he wrote in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. See, in this particular passage in James, James reminds people that their actions need to back up what they say they believe. Right? You can say that you have faith, but if you're works don't prove that you actually do have faith, it means nothing. And so he's confronting these people and he's saying, look, look, you guys are saying all the right things. You say that you, that you believe that God is one. Good for you. That's great. That's theologically correct. The demons also are theologically correct and they have a response. They shudder. Those of you who say that you believe in God, you should do a little bit more than that. Your faith should be evident in how you live your life, how you speak, what you do, what you think, what your priorities are. Because the demons have theologically correct beliefs. And they just do a little shimmy, a little shiver. And that's all. Now, how does that relate to Mark 3? Well, back to Mark 3, we have these people who are demon-possessed, cowering in fear when they see Jesus because they know who he is. Or they are falling down before him, presumably on their face, and they're scared. They're scared. They're afraid that he's going to judge them. They're afraid that he's going to do something to them that will, that will prevent them from being able to do whatever they want to do. But you'll notice their acknowledgement doesn't do a thing. Their acknowledgement doesn't do a thing. Oh, you're the son of God. And that's it. That's it. You know, as we see Jesus' warning to these unclean spirits in verse 12, not to tell others who he was. And as we think about even some of those other times when Jesus exercised authority over the demons, we know that the demons had no choice but to submit themselves to Jesus' authority, right? Because he's God, they had to listen. However, that submission doesn't redeem them, right? That submission from the demons, it doesn't redeem them. It doesn't save them. Now, we could spend uh, some time on, on, on why the demons have no opportunity to repent, why fallen angels don't have the opportunity to repent, but that's not our goal this evening. 
And we can talk about that some other time, maybe in private if you wish. Um, But what Mark wants us to see here in his gospel is that Jesus, right, because he has authority not only to heal, but over the demons as well, he certainly could have made a ministry for himself. He certainly could have made a name for himself by banishing all the demons, right? All demons, gone. All the sickness, gone. Or he could have even used their testimony. Or he could have paraded them around saying like, hey, you, demon, demon person, who am I? Or he could have paraded them around and had them testify of who he was and, and, and why they needed to submit to him. But he did no such thing. See, Jesus understood that his life and his ministry were entirely in the hands of God. Though he had the ability to use his power to uh, to, to heavily, heavily emphasize his godhood to all who might believe so that they would believe in him right then and there, Jesus knew that wasn't God the Father's plan. Right? Think about that. Because he's God, he could have just, he could have forced everyone to believe. Right? He could have removed all stumbling blocks from their, from their minds so that everyone believes right there and then. He could have done such incredible miracles where everyone who looked at him saw him and said, wow, that surely must be the Son of God. He could have done all those things. But that wasn't God the Father's plan. You see, God the Father appointed his son, Jesus, to reveal more about himself, more about God the Father, to the world through Christ. It wasn't about the flashy sign gifts to wow and amaze like a magician does at a magic show. That's not what saves people. Seeing cool things doesn't save people. People need a knowledge of God. God knows that, and that's why he fulfills their greatest need by showing them more of who he is through Christ's life and ministry. Where Jesus had his disciples that he needed to teach so that they could in turn bring, the, bring God's message of salvation to the world. Right? Think about it. If, if God didn't teach the disciples theology and all he did was just show them a bunch of cool tricks, would the gospel message get to us? Right? Will we even have a good understanding of who God is and, and, and what he's done, why he's saved us, why he does what he does? Would we have a good understanding of that? Or why, does God allow things to, uh, why does God allow evil to exist? Why does he allow good people to suffer? I, I don't know. But I can tell you one thing. I saw him heal somebody with a withered hand. It was gross, but he did it. Would that save us? Would that help us trust God more when things are hard? Absolutely not. And that's why we needed to know theology. And that's why God gives us Christ. That's why he teaches us more about himself through Christ. Jesus certainly was not shy about letting people know who he was. But he also trusted that God would be the one who advanced his ministry. Jesus could have done all sorts of stuff to advance his own ministry, to make his name great. But he entrusted himself to the Lord for that. 
He didn't need the demons and their testimony to help him do it. At best, it could have made things maybe a little bit faster. But Jesus wasn't interested in faster. He was interested in being faithful to following God's plan. Now, how does this apply to us? Well, as we look to our Savior and his example and how he approached ministry, we have to remember Our biblical priorities in ministry matter, just like his did. We have to remember that we have to be faithful to do God's ministry in God's way, right? the way that he tells us to do it, the way that he models it for us. Just because something works or seems more efficient doesn't mean that it's something that we should do. Think back to what happened with the Pharisees. Their ministry was very, very good at producing a lot of people who tried to live righteously. At the time that Jesus was living, there were at least 6,000 Pharisees, religious leaders who were in power trying to help people, so they thought, live more righteous lives. Their ministry was very, very good at getting people to conform to an outward sense of righteousness. But it wasn't good at making sure that people gave their hearts to the Lord, which is, as we've seen uh, all all uh, in today's service, what God has always been after. Even think back to Deuteronomy. What is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's what matters to God the most. Not whether you're able to wash your hands in the special way that the Pharisees did before they ate their food and cleanse yourself of impurities, uh, not just from, uh, from you know, the dirt and stuff, but from those evil sinners over there or evil sinners over here. And God has always been after our hearts. Now, don't get me wrong, right? In terms of you know, how Christians should act, there still is a standard that God upholds for us all to, to, to follow. There is still, uh, there still should be a desire to please him in all respects. To die to self. To love God so much that you're willing to say, yeah, this sin over here, I love it. I love it to death. It entertains me greatly. It defines who I am. And so I love it. But for the sake of the gospel, because I know that Christ died for me and that this sin that I love does not love me back, but desires to lead me away from God the Father so that I might die. Because of that, I seek to die to myself, to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. So that I can say, yes, God is better. Yes, God is worth it. And this sin that so desperately seeks my attention and seeks to lure me away from the Lord is nothing. It's nothing. Those who 
really know who God is, who really experience the joy that comes with following after him and, and being free from the guilt that committing sin and loving sin produces in our own hearts. Those are the ones who can say truly and without any sense of irony, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. I know. I know that sometimes it's hard to believe that. Because there's so many things outside of us that say, hey, look at me. I can promise you joy. I can promise you satisfaction. I can promise you that you will never hunger again, that you will never hurt again. But remember, it's always lies. It's never true. It's like a stack $100 bills, but only the top bill is a $100 bill, and the rest of it is monopoly money. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the only one worth pursuing, the only one worth worshiping. And so when we want to advance the kingdom, we don't do things our way or in the way that seems most fit to, or right to us. We want to do it God's way. We want to be pleasing to him. Now, I'm not saying, okay, don't hear me say that we're not... Um, we're not wanting to grow. We're not wanting to change. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and learn from other people's successes and, and, and their failures. But I just want to remind us all that if we're loving Jesus and we're just being faithful, then our ministry doesn't need to be profound. It doesn't need to look like another ministry that we've experienced or been in. We don't need to change the game or come up with a way to be more relevant to the people around us. Sure, we can improve where, in areas where we can do better, right? Uh, in areas that we know are weak. We can, we can certainly make our improvements. We can make changes where it is appropriate, but our focus should never cease to be faithfully teaching God's word and encouraging his people to be changed by it and to live by it too. Again, please don't hear me say uh, that uh, I don't want for us to change or uh, that, I, that, that we don't want to hear any ideas about how we can improve. We definitely want to hear those things. But all I'm saying is that though it is certainly good for us to be challenged in terms of how, how we do ministry and to think about why we do what we do, and by the way, I love having those conversations. Right? But we can never leave our primary responsibility to be faithful, like our Savior was faithful to the Father's mission. Right? What, what, what does God the Father want for us to do? Or what has he commanded us to do through Christ? To make disciples of all nations. By faithfully teaching all that Christ has commanded. And encouraging those who hear all that Christ has commanded, to actually do it. Right? Not just to hear it and be like, cool, thanks, Jesus. I'm encouraged. And move on with life. Right? But to actually live it out. God is primarily concerned with faithfulness to him and his, and his word. So let us strive together to make that our priority 
in our ministry, just as our Savior did. So, in conclusion, today, Mark showed us how Jesus' ministry continued following that looming threat of the Pharisees and Herodians' plot. And though Jesus' life was threatened, his popularity among the people, it continued to grow. And despite this growth in popularity, Jesus never forgot why God the Father sent him to this earth. He wasn't here to increase his own glory and fame. He was here to glorify his Father who sent him. And Jesus ultimately demonstrated this was the priority of his life and ministry as he humbly committed himself to gospel proclamation and to accomplishing the Father's plan. Now, it certainly can be tough to wait upon the Lord, especially when we want to glorify God through excellence in our ministries and in our lives. And yet, it's comforting, right? It's comforting and liberating to know that God doesn't necessarily want innovation or efficiency. Although those things are certainly good. But rather, what matters to God the most is that we are faithful with what we have and, and that we're faithful with where he's placed us now. Right, so as we consider what God will have us learn today, let us strive to humbly do our best to please him with all of our lives. Now, for, uh, for, uh, for those of you who would uh, wish to discuss this sermon uh, later, I just have some discussion questions for you to consider. This will be up on the screen um, for, for you for a while. We can bring it back uh, later uh, so that you can get it. Um, but uh, let's pray. Our Father, as we look at the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we saw him minister to the crowds of people, as we saw him demonstrate his authority over sickness and his authority over the demons, we saw that he never once lost sight of why you sent him to this earth. That you sent him here to preach the gospel. To make known the good news that sins can be forgiven. And that we all ought to repent and return to you. We're grateful, Father, that that this message was preached loud and clear. And that those who had ears, they heard and they responded. And, and we pray, Father, for, uh, for people this, uh, this day, that, Lord, we would do the same. That we would strive, Lord, to respond to the gospel in our lives. Not to just hear it and disregard it upon hearing it, Lord, that we would live our lives in a way that seeks to demonstrate the reality that sins can be forgiven, that righteousness is possible, and that the gospel is the thing that makes all the difference, that we can show people that indeed you are good and you are worth following. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time where we could uh, just reflect on um, more of uh, what you did through Christ. In your sons and we pray. Amen. 
Thank you, Pastor. Uh, let's stand and sing in response to the message. Of the hungry and helpless with the mercy. 
consider your boundless love and your fathomless grace we pray Lord that that would be enough for us as we consider whether it is worth it to follow Christ he has shown us in his ministry his deity he has shown us his goodness his worthiness to be praised. And so we pray, Lord, as we consider him, as we consider the servant, the servant king and his humility, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to love him more and to strive to be like him in our lives as well. We're grateful, Father, for Christ. We pray that you would make us more like him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you for joining us for our service today. We are grateful to have you with us. Have a blessed week. Well, uh, again, thank you everyone for, uh, <laughs> for, for joining us for, for fellowship. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really good to be able to worship with y'all. Really encouraged to hear you uh, sing from up here. It's uh, really, uh, really encouraging just to hear the volume of your singing, the volume of your praise. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very grateful uh, for all of you for, um, for, well, essentially not making this weirder than it needed to be. And, um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're grateful to, to be able to worship together. Uh, we'll, we're going to flash these discussion questions for you again so that uh, you can uh, have a time to uh, just reflect on them. Uh, just, um, yeah, so, so just uh, so I can read it and explain it a little bit. So the first question, how can a commitment to gospel proclamation show up in our personal lives uh, or in our co corporate life together, right? This was Jesus's primary mission, right? He came and he, he was healing Right? And, and that was something that he was glad to do. Right? In, in fact, when he did that, he was fulfilling prophecy by healing people. Um, but that wasn't his only mission. Right? He was committed to proclaiming the gospel. So how can we, in our lives, be committed to proclaiming the gospel to other people? Right? What, how, uh, in, in what ways does that show up? Um, or what ways could it show up? Um, just getting us thinking a little more practically about this. Right? And also, uh, too, Right? Um, 
we don't live the Christian life alone. We live it together. Right? So if we live it together, how can a commitment to gospel proclamation show up as we gather together? Right? So that's just another thing for us to think about. Some practical things to uh, think about. Now, the second question, right? It, for sure, okay, for sure, we have areas in which we can improve in as a church. Right? We do. We have weaknesses, right? Even this fellowship, we acknowledge we have weaknesses. We can do better in certain things. With that being said, with that being said, how can a commitment right, to accomplishing God's plan in God's way help us have constructive conversations as to how we can grow and improve? Right? We can have conversations till our faces turn blue in terms of what is wrong with this church, what is wrong with this fellowship. And I know for some of you, especially for those of you who've been here a long time, we've had those conversations about what is wrong with this church and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying that's unfruitful. I'm not saying that it is a sedition or you're undermining the ministry of this church, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, okay, sure, we have our weaknesses, right? But if we know what God wants for this church, right, if we know the means by which we can do that, right? the proper means by which we can do that, uh, how can we begin to have productive conversations that's not just, uh, in a sense, sanctified complaining about what we see, but how can we think about spurring each other on towards love and good deeds? Right? So that's kind of like the aim of this question. It's not to at all like kick at uh, any you know, uh, thoughts about like, oh, what can we do uh, better, and that's not appropriate. I'm not saying that at all. But it's like, how can we uh, think about this in terms of like productive conversation, using God's means to help us grow? So that, those are the thoughts behind these questions. Um, hopefully that's clear.